From Pittsburgh to Pittston, Saxonburg to York, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, Pennsylvania is one of the nation's largest energy-producing states. And while green energy sounds good, it is the market, not government, that should determine the mix of energy sources. David Taylor, Rebecca Euler, and Stephen Bloom are here for a Capital Watch roundtable discussion. And a new governor, new state Senate leadership, and a state house under Democrat control for the first time in over a decade means there will be a new abnormal in Harrisburg. I'll have a town hall commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capitol Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. In crafting the current fiscal year budget, state lawmakers had to decide how to spend a significant surplus generated largely by one-time infusions of federal cash supposedly designed to combat the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the good times are not going to last. The Independent Fiscal Office is now projecting the Commonwealth will face a $1.5 billion deficit in 2024, and that will balloon to more than $3 billion over the next five years. Republicans salted some of the surplus in the state's rainy day fund, which could help blunt the impact of those deficits, at least temporarily. Many voters may have election fatigue after the recently concluded races for governor and U.S. senator, but it is never too early to start for next year, as candidates have begun to line up for an open seat on the state Supreme Court and several vacancies on the statewide Commonwealth and Superior Courts. Superior Court Judge Dan McCaffrey, a Democrat from Philadelphia, is the first to announce his candidacy for the Supreme Court seat, which is vacant due to the death of Justice Max Baer, who would have reached mandatory retirement age next year. Westmoreland County Common Pleas Court Judge Harry Smale is a Republican who has announced his candidacy for an open seat on the Commonwealth Court. The State House of Representatives has impeached Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, who must now stand trial in the state Senate. Republican State Representatives Craig Williams of Delaware and Chester Counties, Tim Bonner of Mercer and Butler Counties, along with Democrat Jared Solomon of Philadelphia, have been named as impeachment managers. They will present the case against Krasner to the Senate. Krasner was impeached by the House after crime in the state's largest city has surged during his tenure. A two-thirds vote in the Senate is needed to remove Krasner from office. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. While the development of so-called green energy is a laudable goal, government-forcing technologies that are not yet fully developed into the state's energy policy mix is a prescription for disaster. A market-based approach to energy is more practical and dependable. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is here to host a Capital Watch roundtable discussion on the issue. Joining David today are Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation. 
David. And welcome once again to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. With me in the studio, your Capital Watch All-Stars, Steve Bloom, Vice President of the Commonwealth Foundation. Great to see you, man. Great to see you, David. And Rebecca <laughs> Euler, President and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. Rebecca, thanks for being here. Great to be back, Dave. Thanks. So we've gotten past uh, Thanksgiving, and hopefully uh, it uh, everyone was well fed and uh, you didn't fight with your relatives. So thanks for taking time to to listen to us. And, you know, you you oftentimes hear us critiquing problems, saying that things aren't as good as they should be. But I want to start off today actually saying that Pennsylvania has done something right. Pennsylvania has a competitive market for electricity and that Pennsylvania is actually the number one electricity exporting state in America and that having a competitive marketplace has encouraged private sector investment, it's driven down prices, and it's actually been really good for consumers, especially, you know, the large consumers of energy like manufacturing. Essentially, Pennsylvania has demonstrated the reality of how well free markets work for any important good or service that that people need or want. Healthy competition in a scenario like it is for the electric utilities in Pennsylvania allows for prices to actually be driven down by that healthy competition, but yet uh, entities that are supplying electricity can still make a profit. Yes. And so you, you have a win-win. Those who have the, the item in demand, in this case electricity, electric service, they win, they produce it and, and sell it to some consumer at a profit. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, that consumer is paying less than they would have had that service been monopolized like it used to be. Correct. So Pennsylvania opened the door to an experiment in free market economics around energy, electricity in particular, and it's it, the, the, the notion that free markets are actually good for everyone yeah. came through with flying colors. And this is something good that we need to keep because having affordable, uh, reliable uh, power is, you know, it's good for consumers. It's good for the economy because so many of our, um, you know, vital needs, vital services require, um, you know, electricity. Obviously, all of our homes, all of our businesses, all of our our gizmos, our computers and our flat screens and all that good stuff. And so the reason why I bring this up is that I think a failure to appreciate how much a competitive electric market has done for us, um, it leaves it open for the, the tinkerers and the central planners who want to mess with our energy economy. And the diversity in the marketplace that's allowed for when you have open competition like this is also good for resiliency, in particular in the electric grid and electric services, which are vital to everyone's health well-being, you can't, you can't run a hospital, you can't refrigerate food, you can't air condition a place on, on an extremely hot day or heat a house without electricity. And so the resiliency that comes from a diversity of suppliers drawn in by the opportunity to compete for a profit is making everyone in Pennsylvania's life better. And, and it's been, again, a successful experiment. It's also helped to drive innovation. Because, you know, again, when you have the chance to be rewarded for taking a risk and you have those parameters, knowing what the, you know, what the the conditions are like in the marketplace, people can do that. And actually, you know, I would argue that um, that putting some energy production methods outside of the marketplace and having them, you know, as like the teacher's pet that we're going to mandate their use and we're going to subsidize them and whatnot, that actually that 
it makes more distant the arrival of new breakthrough technologies. You know, we need something that's going to under be, be able to undergo the rigors of the marketplace to be cost effective. And and that's kind of where I'm I'm leading with all this, that we have people that want to distort the marketplace by um, by mandating the use and providing subsidies for certain favored energy sources. Well, one thing I would add, and we talked about competition keeping um, keeping costs down, which is obviously good for the entire economy, diversity, innovation, which we just talked about, which is essential. But one thing I'd add, too, is um, when you talk about um, – you know, no mandates. Um, well, actually, the nice thing about um, having choice in the marketplace is that you have individuals that are able to, um, you know, buy the priorities that they have. So if you want to buy renewable energy, you have the choice to do that. Uh, rather than a mandate to do it, you you have the choice to buy, you know, energy that comes from renewable resources. The choice is there. So individual choices in the marketplace are there, too. So I think that's an important point to make. And this was an accomplishment of the Ridge administration. The Governor Ridge set this in motion. It took a long time. It took like 10 years. Um, and it was pretty expensive, too because you had energy producers who said, hey, we, we made all these capital investments based on our future ability to recoup costs through you know, utility rate increases at the Public Utility Commission. You can't leave us high and dry. And it was, you know, the, those interests were respected to say, hey, that you're right, that's not fair. So during the transition, you can surcharge the ratepayers. So those those pr- producers got paid for their for their stranded costs. Um, but now, you know, being in an being in an open marketplace, bringing you know, experiencing that competition, seeing prices being driven down, even as capacity expands, um, that it was during the Rendell administration that they took our 100% market and they carved out a chunk for their preferred energy sources. It's called the Renewable Portfolio Standard. And so that it's like it's less than I think it's like 18% was the max future carve out. So you still have at least, you know, 82% of the market being competitive, which is, you know, which is enough to have a competitive marketplace. Well, Governor-elect Shapiro is talking about taking that carve-out and making it a full 30% of the marketplace. And so that would be a big dent in, you know, again, in the ability of consumer choice to help to drive innovation and keep prices low. And and this is basically it's exactly the kind of thing that we shouldn't do. Government's tendency is to want to step in and start to control and manipulate the market for what they might perceive even in good faith sometimes – to be a benefit to make beneficial changes for the consumer when in fact time and time again that government interference in a free market is what actually makes things worse for consumers so when let's say in the name of green energy uh, the the standards are are changed by Pennsylvania's new governor instead of a victory for green energy in in all likelihood based on history it's simply going to drive up costs for consumers across the board and there won't be any tangible improvement in the environmental conditions, you will just have reshuffled a marketplace, made it less efficient and more expensive for consumers, many of whom are already being hit hard by inflation in this current economy. And it's unlikely to yield any positive technological changes either, because when everything is mandated and subsidized, you know, people are more focused on on harvesting subsidies and flipping credits than than actually you know focusing on the core business of producing right, energy because people respond to incentives if the incentive is that you can actually make more money by 
working behind the scenes to change the way the government is administering a program to your advantage, it's, it's a logical, rational choice to devote your resources to changing the government policy rather than the actual competition in, in, in the marketplace where, you, where your products and services have to compete with others, all of whom are trying to develop the best possible product or service at the lowest price. So the money's going into lobbyists rather than making the actual product better, is what you're saying. Exactly. And it's, it's making government bigger and, and the reach of government regulation wider. You're listening to Capital Watch. I'm your host, David Taylor from Pennsylvania Manufacturers. With me, Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Steve Bloom from the Commonwealth Foundation. I think on the part of these, of these green advocates, they're trying to you know, regulate and subsidize new energy forms into existence. And it just – it's like it doesn't work that way. And so we can't ignore – the, the fundamentals of the resources that we have in this country and the comparative yield of different energy sources, like it, it's, it makes me crazy that's all this emphasis on wind turbines and solar panels, which, again, if people want to buy solar panels and install them on their homes or their, or their uh, offices or whatever, that's great. I believe in choices in the marketplace, and if, if folks want to do that, that's fine by me. But to mandate it, to subsidize it, to disadvantage other, you know, uh, innate American energy sources like oil and coal and natural gas, which America has in abundance, it it makes no sense because those energy sources, the wind and the solar, that they're they're the technologies are based on critical minerals that we do not have in this country. And even though we we don't mine enough for these resources, we don't have any processing or refining capacity. And so even if we dug up more of those ores here, we'd still have to ship them to China, have them processed there, and then buy it back. So it 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 from just from a national security uh, uh, viewpoint, this is a very, very poor choice to to uh, to make rather than, again, just to focus on um, on, um, you know, American energy resources and um, and American energy infrastructure. And Rebecca, certainly in, you know, in your field that, again, if people want to buy uh, uh, an electric vehicle, they're really cool toys and that's great. But the fact is that the the contents, the things that make that vehicle go, we do not have them in this country. And, you know, when you talk about charging distances and that kind of stuff, the idea yeah. of having our trucking industry, um, you know, converted over to battery powered electric vehicles, it's just it's ridiculous in the extreme. Yeah, actually, as we're going through talking about all of these issues with regard to just energy production, you can sort of take this whole discussion and and plop it into the diesel technology field, too, because when we're talking about choices, this exactly is what's happening in, you know, in California and New York and uh, New Jersey when they're um, going down the road of mandating electric vehicles and specifically electric trucks. They're taking away choice in the marketplace for um, for trucks. So um, there are so many options for reducing emissions in trucks, and we have made amazing strides in diesel technology in the past 20 years. Um, so like, for instance, today, um, one there's 60 diesel trucks today is equivalent to one diesel truck from 1988. In terms of the emissions? Emissions, right. So one truck one from truck. 1988 
emitted the equivalent of 60, 60. trucks today. So we've right. reduced it by 59 out of 60. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. So we have made so much, uh, so much progress in terms of the technology involved. Um, and that's because consumers, you know, people who are buying the technology um, believe and in, you know, the science and making things better. But um, by taking away the option of actually having diesel trucks, period, because that's what they're doing in California, mm-hmm. you're you're taking away the incentive to actually um, improve them and make you know make them better. There are other technologies involved. There are natural gas vehicles. There are um, you know hydrogen vehicles. There are lots of other technologies that might be available to us that um, these states, when they take away. Um, you know, diesel powered, well, any powered trucks other than electric, because that's where they're going down the road of only electric vehicles. Um, you're taking away all those other options and yeah. you're removing progress in all those other areas. Yeah. All those other avenues of potential innovation. Yes, because exactly. I don't know. Right. You don't know. Steve doesn't know. But somebody out there might have a way to do this better. But because there'll be a government directed misallocation of dollars. Right. Forcing consumers to spend in a certain direction that those other potential avenues will not be explored and that exactly. we'll, we'll all miss out. Again, it's that command and control and, impulse and that this is why we need what Pennsylvania has achieved thus far with a competitive market for electricity and and also uh, you know, why we need to proceed along the lines of a pro production agenda on domestic energy. Think about what, what's happened in Pennsylvania over, I think, Rebecca, you said it was about a 20-year period in which the efficiency of that diesel was, mm-hmm. I don't even know how to do the math on that, how right. 60 times more efficient yeah. than, than what was happening 20 years ago mm-hmm. today. Think about what happened in Pennsylvania with the, the discovery and ultimate um, exploitation of Pennsylvania natural gas. We took a, a, a state that uh, by all accounts, was one of the dirtier states, a state where there was a lot of coal being extracted and burned, uh, an atmosphere that, that was not only in terms of so-called greenhouse gases, but just in terms of particulate pollution and mm-hmm. other forms of pollution, a very dirty technology was, was the burning of coal for electricity. Today, almost all the new electricity plants going online are driven by Pennsylvania natural gas. It's clean, drastically cleaner than coal. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. 60 times cleaner, but it's on that same magni- order of magnitude, drastically cleaner than, than burning coal or oil for, for electricity. And that industry, the natural gas industry, it didn't arise in Pennsylvania because some government bureaucrats said, hey, we should start drilling for gas in Pennsylvania. In fact, it was, it was through the open marketplace, but an open marketplace that had to compete against a hostile government that was trying to shut it down at every turn. Yep. And even despite that, we were ultimately able to gain access to that resource, allow it into our markets without government subsidy. And in fact, again, with government threatening every day to tax it three times over, right. uh, but still so much more efficient and so much cleaner that we're all better off for it. That's the tragedy of what, what would be prevented by the government deciding which energy sources we use to create the the energy, the electricity, and so forth that we need. Any state or nation should play to its strengths. And that, you know, mobilizing the resources that we have here naturally 
in Pennsylvania, that that is the key to, uh, you know, again, to, to prosperity for our people because, I mean, Rebecca, you, you know this well, that energy is so critical to every other thing that we do in our lives that having abundant and available and affordable energy makes possible all of those other human activities. Everyone's very well aware of how important electricity and power is to our lives and our manufacturing capabilities and all of that. But if you think about it, um, everything that you touch was on a truck at some point, and probably multiple trucks. So um, when we talk about the cost of goods um, out in the marketplace today, and we all know we're dealing with a lot of inflation, um, Half of the of the inflationary cost of goods in, in 2021 was transportation costs. Right. And we know diesel fuel right now is through the roof. So at every point, one of those um, goods, think about the milk in your refrigerator, touched a truck mm-hmm. between, um, you know, the, the uh, farm and the dairy where it was processed and between the dairy and your grocery store, it was on a truck. Yep. And most products were on multiple trucks along the way. So at every point in the supply chain where um, those products were on a truck, that cost was incorporated into the cost of your product. And and so having, you know, liquid petroleum-based liquid fuels is important. You know, in, in manufacturing, there are a lot of uh, processes that require petrochemical inputs that can't be replaced with electrification. Also, that there are many products that require a very high temperature point that can only be delivered from an industrial furnace fueled by coal or natural gas. So the idea that we can swap out uh, one-for-one electric for these other energy sources is just, it's nonsensical. Again, like I promised at the outset, this is actually a happy story. Pennsylvania is doing something right with our competitive market for electricity and that the smart thing to do is to stick with it and, again, to allow free people and a free economy to make free choices and to allow those, uh, you know, those innovators uh, and investors to find a better way to uh, make money by serving uh, customers and delivering goods and services. So uh, anyway, we got to wind it down. That's all for this week. Steve, where can people go to learn more about you and your organization? They can visit CommonwealthFoundation.org on the Internet. Outstanding. Rebecca, where can people track you down? You can find the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association at PMTA.org. Outstanding. And as ever, you can find me online at PAManufacturers.org and on the Pennsylvania Cable Network Sunday mornings at 830 with PMA Perspectives. So from Steve and Rebecca and me, thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Loman Henry. Thank you, David. As the dust settles on the general election, the only certainty is that state government will be very different come January. A new governor will take office, the state senator will have new leadership, and the state house, well, chaos will reign at least for the first half of the year. Attorney General Josh Shapiro will become the new governor of Penn's Woods, and his administration promises to be significantly different from that of outgoing Governor Tom Wolfe. Wolfe came into office with scant government experience. He served as a cabinet secretary and little real-world experience aside from a largely symbolic executive position with his family business. In the truest sense of the word, the incumbent governor was a lone wolf, He did not seek to bring stakeholders to the policy-making table, relying on an insular staff and firing off orders like a D-Day commander. 
The COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated his go-it-alone tendencies, triggering open warfare with the legislature. The end result was Wolf suffered an historic rebuke as voters actually amended the state constitution to curb his executive powers. If passed his prologue, Josh Shapiro is likely to follow a different path. A career politician, Shapiro has served in the state legislature and is familiar with its internal workings. He chaired the Board of Commissioners in one of the state's most populous counties, and his tenure as Attorney General has been workmanlike and highly disciplined. Shapiro will enter office far better equipped for the task than did his predecessor. In the state Senate, the departure of President pro tempore Jake Corman marks the end of an era. Corman gave up his Senate seat to embark on an ill-fated run for governor. He was the last vestige of a power structure, helmed for years by former President pro tempore Joe Scarnati and anchored by a core of Collar County moderates who were prone to selling out to Democratic governors and the institutional enemies of conservative policies. Those southeastern moderates, and by the way, that term is charitable, have been largely obliterated by voters over the past three or four cycles. State Senator Kim Ward, a Republican from Westmoreland County, becomes the new Senate president pro tempore and ushers in what promises to be a far more conservative GOP caucus. Like Shapiro, Ward has risen through the political ranks, having also served as a county commissioner. Westmoreland has become a bright red county, giving her a strong base from which to preside over a chamber populated by 28 Republicans and 22 Democrats. The new Republican leadership team is cut from the Reagan-Buckley mold of policy-oriented conservatism rather than the more boisterous populist Trump brand. Look for them to roll up their sleeves to actually move forward a pro-growth agenda. New Majority Leader Senator Joe Pittman of Indiana County has fought hard to protect family-sustaining jobs. The new Appropriations Committee Chairman, Scott Martin of Lancaster County, has been an effective leader in giving parents the freedom to choose educational opportunities that best fit their child. And then there is the House of Representatives. As a result of running in new, highly gerrymandered districts, Democrats have secured a one-seat majority. Uh, Or have they? Included in the Democrats' one-seat majority is an individual whose death just before the election precludes him from taking office. Another, State Representative Summer Lee, will be sworn into Congress, effectively leaving the Democrats two seats short and giving the GOP a one-seat advantage. Add to the mix, State Representative Austin Davis of Allegheny County will resign in January to take office as lieutenant governor, and the Democrats will be shorthanded until special elections can be held to fill those three seats. Two of those seats are solid Democrat. While one is a likely Democrat district that could be competitive, should Republicans do well at candidate selection and then do something they didn't do this year, run a competent campaign. Over the past four years, House Republicans have fought the draconian policies of Governor Tom Wolf with some success. But that success did not extend to either the redistricting or electoral processes, meaning at some point next year, Democrats will likely take control of the chamber's mechanics. This is where governing will get tricky. The House Democratic Caucus is composed of largely urban progressives whose policies frequently cross the line into socialism or worse. 
They are loud, aggressive, and detached from reality. Thus, Governor Shapiro is likely to find himself with the same challenge as President Joe Biden has at the national level, governing with an extreme leftist flank. And so 2023 will dawn with both promise and peril. Grab some popcorn and stay tuned. It's going to be an interesting show. With a town hall commentary, I'm Loman Henry. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WCYJ-FM in Waynesburg, WRAK-AM in Williamsport, along with WROV-FM in Dubois, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.